BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Section 7 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 7. The Problem of Thor Bridge. Somewhere in the vaults of the bank of Cox and Company at Charing Cross, there is a travel-worn and battered tin dispatch box with my name, John H. Watson, M.D., late Indian Army, painted on the lid. It is crammed with papers, nearly all of which are records of cases to illustrate the curious problems which Mr. Sherlock Holmes had at various times to examine. Some, and not the least interesting, were complete failures, and as such will hardly bear narrating, since no final explanation is forthcoming. A problem without a solution may interest the student, but can hardly fail to annoy the casual reader. Among these unfinished tales is that of Mr. James Fillimore, who, stepping back into his own house to get his umbrella, was never more seen in this world. No less remarkable is that of the cutter Alicia, which sailed one spring morning into a small patch of mist from where she never again emerged, nor was anything further ever heard of herself and her crew. The third case worthy of note is that of Isadora Persano, the well-known journalist and duelist who was found stark staring mad with a matchbox in front of him, which contained a remarkable worm said to be unknown to science. Apart from these unfathomed cases, there are some which involve the secrets of private families to an extent which would mean consternation in many exalted quarters if it were thought possible that they might find their way into print. I need not say that such a breach of confidence is unthinkable, and that these records will be separated and destroyed now that my friend has time to turn his energies to the matter. There remain a considerable residue of cases of greater or less interest, which I might have edited before had I not feared to give the public a surfeit which might react upon the reputation of the man whom above all others I revere. In some I was myself concerned, and can speak as an eyewitness, while in others I was either not present or played so small a part that they could only be told as by a third person. The following narrative is drawn from my own experience. It was a wild morning in October, and I observed as I was dressing how the last remaining leaves were being whirled from the solitary plane tree which graces the yard behind our house. I descended to breakfast, prepared to find my companion in depressed spirits, for, like all great artists, he was easily impressed by his surroundings. On the contrary, 
I found that he had nearly finished his meal, and that his mood was particularly bright and joyous, with that somewhat sinister cheerfulness which was characteristic of his lighter moments. "'You have a case, Holmes?' I remarked. "'The faculty of deduction is certainly contagious, Watson,' he answered. "'It has enabled you to probe my secret. "'Yes, I have a case. "'After a month of trivialities and stagnation, "'the wheels move once more. "'Might I share it?' "'There is little to share, "'but we may discuss it when you have consumed "'the two hard-boiled eggs "'with which our new cook has favoured us. "'Their condition may not be unconnected "'with the copy of the family Herald, "'which I observed yesterday upon the hall-table.' Even so trivial a matter as cooking an egg demands an attention which is conscious of the passage of time, and incompatible with the love romance in that excellent periodical. A quarter of an hour later the table had been cleared, and we were face to face. He had drawn a letter from his pocket. "'You have heard of Neil Gibson, the Gold King?' he said. "'You mean the American senator?' Well, he was once senator for some western state, but is better known as the greatest gold-mining magnate in the world. Yes, I know of him. He has surely lived in England for some time. His name is very familiar. Yes, he bought a considerable estate in Hampshire some five years ago. Possibly you have already heard of the tragic end of his wife. Of course, I remember it now. That is why the name is familiar— but I really know nothing of the details. Holmes waved his hand towards some papers on a chair. I had no idea that the case was coming my way, or I should have had my extracts ready, said he. The fact is that the problem, though exceedingly sensational, appeared to present no difficulty. The interesting personality of the accused does not obscure the clearness of the evidence. That was the view taken by the coroner's jury— and also in the police court proceedings. It is now referred to the Assizes at Winchester. I fear it is a thankless business. I can discover facts, Watson, but I cannot change them. Unless some entirely new and unexpected ones come to light, I do not see what my client can hope for. Your client? Ah, I forgot I had not told you. I am getting into your involved habit, Watson, of telling a story backwards. You had best read this first. The letter which he handed to me, written in a bold, masterful hand, ran as follows. Claridge's Hotel, October 3rd. Dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I can't see the best woman God ever made go to her death without doing all that is possible to save her. I can't explain things. I can't even try to explain them. But I know beyond all doubt that Miss Dunbar is innocent. You know the facts. Who doesn't? It has been the gossip of the country and never a voice raised for her. It's the damned injustice of it all that makes me crazy. That woman has a heart that wouldn't let her kill a fly. Well, I'll come at eleven tomorrow and see if you can get some ray of light in the dark. Maybe I have a clue and don't know it. Anyhow, all I know and all I have and all I am are for your use, if only you can save her. If ever in your life you showed your powers— Put them now into this case. Yours faithfully, J. Neil Gibson. There you have it, said Sherlock Holmes, knocking out the ashes of his after-breakfast pipe and slowly refilling it. That is the gentleman I await. 
as to the story you have hardly time to master all these papers so i must give it to you in a nutshell if you are to take an intelligent interest in the proceedings this man is the greatest financial power in the world and a man as i understand of most violent and formidable character he married a wife the victim of this tragedy of whom i know nothing save that she was past her prime which was the more unfortunate as a very attractive governess superintended the education of two young children these are the three people concerned and the scene is a grand old manor-house the centre of an historical english estate then as to the tragedy the wife was found in the grounds nearly half a mile from the house late at night clad in her dinner-dress with a shawl over her shoulders and a revolver bullet through her brain no weapon was found near her and there was no local clue as to the murder no weapon near her watson mark that the crime seems to have been committed late in the evening and the body was found by a gamekeeper about eleven o'clock when it was examined by the police and by a doctor before being carried up to the house is this too condensed or can you follow it clearly it is all very clear but why suspect the governess well in the first place there is some very direct evidence a revolver with one discharged chamber and a calibre which corresponded with the bullet was found on the floor of her wardrobe his eyes fixed and he repeated in broken words on the floor of her wardrobe then he sank into silence and i saw that some train of thought had been set moving which i should be foolish to interrupt suddenly with a start he emerged into brisk life once more yes watson it was found pretty damning eh so the two juries thought then the dead woman had a note upon her making an appointment at that very place and signed by the governess how's that finally there is the motive senator gibson is an attractive person if his wife dies who more likely to succeed her than the young lady who had already by all accounts received pressing invitations from her employer love fortune power all depending upon one middle-aged life ugly watson very ugly yes indeed holmes nor could she prove an alibi on the contrary she had to admit that she was down near thor bridge that was the scene of the tragedy about that hour she couldn't deny it for some passing villager had seen her there that really seems final and yet watson and yet this bridge a single broad span of stone with balustraded sides carries the drive over the narrowest part of a long deep reed-girt sheet of water thormir it is called in the mouth of the bridge lay the dead woman such are the main facts but here if i mistake not is our client considerably before his time billy had opened the door but the name which he announced was an unexpected one mr marlowe bates was a stranger to both of us he was a thin nervous wisp of a man with frightened eyes and a twitching hesitating manner a man whom my own professional eye would judge to be on the brink of an absolute nervous breakdown you seem agitated mr bates said holmes pray sit down i fear i can only give you a short time for i have an appointment at eleven i know you have 
our visitor gasped, shooting out short sentences like a man who is out of breath. Mr. Gibson is coming. Mr. Gibson is my employer. I am manager of his estate. Mr. Holmes, he is a villain, an infernal villain. Strong language, Mr. Bates. I have to be emphatic, Mr. Holmes, for the time is so limited. I would not have him find me here for the world. He is almost due now, but I was so situated that I could not come earlier. His secretary, Mr. Ferguson, only told me this morning of his appointment with you. And you are his manager? I have given him notice. In a couple of weeks I shall have shaken off his accursed slavery. A hard man, Mr. Holmes, hard to all about him. Those public charities are a screen to cover his private iniquities. But his wife was his chief victim. He was brutal to her. Yes, sir, brutal. How she came by her death I do not know, but I am sure that he had made her life a misery to her. She was a creature of the tropics, a Brazilian by birth, as no doubt you know. No, it had escaped me. A tropical by birth and tropical by nature. A child of the sun and of passion. She had loved him, as such women can love. But when her own physical charms had faded, I am told that they once were great, there was nothing to hold him. We all liked her, and felt for her, and hated him for the way that he treated her. But he is plausible and cunning. That is all I have to say to you. Don't take him at his face value. There is more behind. Now I'll go. No, no, don't detain me. He is almost due. With a frightened look at the clock, our strange visitor literally ran to the door and disappeared. "'Well, well,' said Holmes, after an interval of silence. "'Mr. Gibson seems to have a nice loyal household. "'But the warning is a useful one, "'and now we can only wait till the man himself appears.' "'Sharp at the hour, we heard a heavy step upon the stairs, "'and the famous millionaire was shown into the room. "'As I looked upon him, I understood not only the fears "'and dislike of his manager, "'but also the execrations which so many business rivals "'have heaped upon his head.' If I were a sculptor and desired to idealize the successful man of affairs, iron of nerve and leathery of conscience, I should choose Mr. Neil Gibson as my model. His tall, gaunt, craggy figure had a suggestion of hunger and rapacity, and Abraham Lincoln, keyed to base uses instead of high ones, would give some idea of the man. His face might have been chiseled in granite, hard set, craggy, remorseless, with deep lines upon it, the scars of many a crisis. Cold grey eyes, looking shrewdly out from under bristling brows, surveyed us each in turn. He bowed in perfunctory fashion, as Holmes mentioned my name, and then, with a masterful air of possession, he drew a chair up to my companion and seated himself with his bony knees almost touching him. "'Let me say right here, Mr. Holmes,' he began, "'that money is nothing to me in this case. "'You can burn it if it's any use in lighting you to the truth. "'This woman is innocent, and this woman has to be cleared, "'and it's up to you to do it. Name your figure.' "'My professional charges are upon a fixed scale,' said Holmes coldly. "'I do not vary them, save when I remit them altogether.' "'Well, if dollars make no difference to you, think of the reputation. "'If you pull this off, every paper in England and America will be booming you. "'You'll be the talk of two continents.' "'Thank you, Mr. Gibson. I do not think that I am in need of booming. "'It may surprise you to know that I prefer to work anonymously, "'and that it is the problem itself which attracts me. 
but we are wasting time. Let us get down to the facts. I think that you will find all the main ones in the press reports. I don't know that I can add anything which will help you. But if there is anything you would wish more light upon, well, I am here to give it. Well, there is just one point. What is it? What were the exact relations between you and Miss Dunbar? The Gold King gave a violent start and half rose from his chair. Then his massive calm came back to him. I suppose you are within your rights, and maybe doing your duty and asking such a question, Mr. Holmes. We will agree to suppose so, said Holmes. Then I can assure you that our relations were entirely and always those of an employer towards a young lady whom he never conversed with or ever saw save when she was in the company of his children. Holmes rose from his chair. I am a rather busy man, Mr. Gibson, said he, and I have no time or taste for aimless conversations. I wish you good morning. Our visitor had risen also, and his great loose figure towered above Holmes. There was an angry gleam from under those bristling brows, and a tinge of colour in the sallow cheeks. "'What the devil do you mean by this, Mr. Holmes? Do you dismiss my case?' "'Well, Mr. Gibson, at least I dismiss you. I should have thought my words were plain.' "'Plain enough. But what's at the back of it? Raising the price on me, or afraid to tackle it, or what? I have a right to a plain answer.' "'Well, perhaps you have,' said Holmes. I'll give you one. This case is quite sufficiently complicated to start with, without the further difficulty of false information. Meaning that I lie. Well, I was trying to express it as delicately as I could, but if you insist upon the word, I will not contradict you. I sprang to my feet, for the expression upon the millionaire's face was fiendish in its intensity, and he had raised his great knotted fist. Holmes smiled languidly, and reached his hand out for his pipe. "'Don't be noisy, Mr. Gibson. I find that, after breakfast, even the smallest argument is unsettling. I suggest that a stroll in the morning air and a little quiet thought will be greatly to your advantage.' With an effort the Gold King mastered his fury. I could not but admire him, for, by a supreme self-command, he had turned in a minute from a hot flame of anger to a frigid and contemptuous indifference. Well, it's your choice. I guess you know how to run your own business. I can't make you touch the case against your will. You've done yourself no good this morning, Mr. Holmes, for I have broken stronger men than you. No man ever crossed me and was the better for it. "'So many have said so. "'And yet here I am,' said Holmes, smiling. "'Well, good morning, Mr. Gibson. "'You have a good deal yet to learn.' "'Our visitor made a noisy exit, "'but Holmes smoked in imperturbable silence, "'with dreamy eyes fixed upon the ceiling. "'Any views, Watson?' he asked at last. "'Well, Holmes, I must confess that when I consider that this is a man who would certainly brush any obstacle from his path, and when I remember that his wife may have been an obstacle and an object of dislike, as that man Bates plainly told us, it seems to me—exactly, and to me also. "'But what were his relations with the governess, and how did you discover them?' "'Bluff, Watson, bluff.' 
When I considered the passionate, unconventional, unbusinesslike tone of his letter, and contrasted it with his self-contained manner and appearance, it was pretty clear that there was some deep emotion which centred upon the accused woman, rather than upon the victim. We've got to understand the exact relations of those three people, if we are to reach the truth. You saw the frontal attack which I made upon him, and how imperturbably he received it. Then I bluffed him by giving him the impression that I was absolutely certain, when in reality I was only extremely suspicious. Perhaps he will come back? He is sure to come back. He must come back. He can't leave it where it is. Ha! Isn't that a ring? Yes, there is his footstep. Well, Mr. Gibson, I was just saying to Dr. Watson that you were somewhat overdue. The Gold King had re-entered the room in a more chastened mood than he had left it. His wounded pride still showed in his resentful eyes, but his common sense had shown him that he must yield if he would attain his end. "'I've been thinking it over, Mr. Holmes, and I feel that I have been hasty in taking your remarks amiss. You're justified in getting down to the facts, whatever they may be, and I think the more of you for it. I can assure you, however, that the relations between Miss Dunbar and me don't really touch this case.' That is for me to decide, is it not? Yes, I guess that is so. You are like a surgeon who wants every symptom before he can give his diagnosis. Exactly. That expresses it. And it is only a patient who has an object in deceiving his surgeon who would conceal the facts of his case. That may be so. But you will admit, Mr. Holmes, that most men would shy off a bit when they are asked point-blank what their relations with a woman may be, if there is really some serious feeling in the case. I guess most men have a little private reserve of their own, in some corner of their souls, where they don't welcome intruders. And you burst suddenly into it. But the object excuses you, since it was to try and save her. Well... The stakes are down, and the reserve open, and you can explore where you will. What is it you want? The truth. The Gold King paused for a moment as one who marshals his thoughts. His grim, deep-lined face had become even sadder and more grave. "'I can give it to you in a very few words, Mr. Holmes,' he said at last. "'There are some things that are painful as well as difficult to say,' so I won't go deeper than is needful. I met my wife when I was gold-hunting in Brazil. Maria Pinto was the daughter of a government official in Manaus, and she was very beautiful. I was young and ardent in those days, but even now, as I look back with colder blood and a more critical eye, I can see that she was rare and wonderful in her beauty. It was a deep, rich nature, too, passionate, whole-hearted, tropical, ill-balanced, very different from the American women whom I had known. Well, to make a long story short, I loved her, and I married her. It was only when the romance had passed, and it lingered for years, that I realized that we had nothing, absolutely nothing in common. My love faded. If hers had faded also, it might have been easier— but you know the wonderful way of women. Do what I might, nothing could turn her from me. If I have been harsh to her, 
even brutal, as some have said. It has been because I knew that if I could kill her love, or if it turned to hate, it would be easier for both of us. But nothing changed her. She adored me in those English woods, as she had adored me twenty years ago on the banks of the Amazon. Do what I might, she was as devoted as ever. And then came Miss Grace Dunbar. She answered our advertisement and became governess to our two children. Perhaps you have seen her portrait in the papers. The whole world has proclaimed that she also is a very beautiful woman. Now I make no pretense to be more moral than my neighbors, and I will admit to you that I could not live under the same roof with such a woman, and in daily contact with her without feeling a passionate regard for her. Do you blame me, Mr. Holmes? I do not blame you for feeling it. I should blame you if you expressed it, since this young lady was, in a sense, under your protection. Well, maybe so, said the millionaire, though for a moment the reproof had brought the old angry gleam into his eyes. I'm not pretending to be any better than I am. I guess all my life I've been a man that reached out his hand for what he wanted and I never wanted anything more than the love and possession of that woman. I told her so. Oh, you did, did you? Holmes could look very formidable when he was moved. I said to her that if I could marry her, I would, but that it was out of my power. I said that money was no object, and that all I could do to make her happy and comfortable would be done. "'Very generous, I am sure,' said Holmes, with a sneer. "'See here, Mr. Holmes, I came to you on a question of evidence, not on a question of morals. I am not asking for your criticism.' "'It is only for the young lady's sake that I touch your case at all,' said Holmes, sternly. "'I don't know that anything she is accused of is really worse than what you have yourself admitted, that you have tried to ruin a defenceless girl who is under your roof.' Some of you rich men have to be taught that all the world cannot be bribed into condoning your offences. To my surprise, the Gold King took the reproof with equanimity. That's how I feel myself about it now. I thank God that my plans did not work out as I intended. She would have none of it, and she wanted to leave the house instantly. Why did she not? Well, in the first place... Others were dependent upon her, and it was no light matter for her to let them all down by sacrificing her living. When I had sworn, as I did, that she should never be molested again, she consented to remain. But there was another reason. She knew the influence she had over me, and that it was stronger than any other influence in the world. She wanted to use it for good. How? Well, she knew something of my affairs. They are large, Mr. Holmes, large beyond the belief of an ordinary man. I can make or break, and it is usually break. It wasn't individuals only, it was communities, cities, even nations. Business is a hard game, and the weak go to the wall. I played the game for all it was worth. I never squealed myself, and I never cared if the other fellow squealed. But she saw it different. I guess she was right. 
She believed and said that a fortune for one man that was more than he needed should not be built on ten thousand ruined men who were left without the means of life. That is how she saw it. And I guess she could see past the dollars to something that was more lasting. She found that I listened to what she said, and she believed she was serving the world by influencing my actions. So she stayed, and then this came along. Can you throw any light upon that? The Gold King paused for a minute or more, his head sunk in his hands, lost in deep thought. It's very black against her, I can't deny that. And women lead an inward life and may do things beyond the judgment of a man. At first I was so rattled and taken aback that I was ready to think she had been led away in some extraordinary fashion that was clean against her usual nature. One explanation came into my head. I give it to you, Mr. Holmes, for what it is worth. There is no doubt that my wife was bitterly jealous. There is a soul jealousy that can be as frantic as any body jealousy. And though my wife had no cause, and I think she understood this for the latter, she was aware that this English girl exerted an influence upon my mind and my acts that she herself never had. It was an influence for good, but that did not mend the matter. She was crazy with hatred, and the heat of the Amazon was always in her blood. She might have planned to murder Miss Dunbar, or, we will say, to threaten her with a gun and so frighten her into leaving us. Then there might have been a scuffle, and the gun gone off and shot the woman who held it. That possibility had already occurred to me, said Holmes. Indeed, it is the only obvious alternative to deliberate murder. But she utterly denies it. Well, that is not final, is it? One can understand that a woman placed in so awful a position might hurry home, still in her bewilderment holding the revolver. She might even throw it down among her clothes, hardly knowing what she was doing, and when it was found she might try to lie her way out by a total denial since all explanation was impossible. What is against such a supposition? Miss Dunbar herself! Well, perhaps. Holmes looked at his watch. I have no doubt we can get the necessary permits this morning to reach Winchester by the evening train. When I have seen this young lady, it is very possible that I may be of more use to you in the matter, though I cannot promise that my conclusions will necessarily be such as you desire. There was some delay in the official pass, and instead of reaching Winchester that day, we went down to Thor Place, the Hampshire estate of Mr. Neil Gibson. He did not accompany us himself, but we had the address of Sergeant Coventry of the local police, who had first examined into the affair. He was a tall, thin, cadaverous man with a secretive and mysterious manner, which conveyed the idea that he knew or suspected a very great deal more than he dared say. He had a trick, too, of suddenly sinking his voice to a whisper, as if he had come upon something of vital importance, though the information was usually commonplace enough. Behind these tricks of manner he soon showed himself to be a decent, honest fellow, who was not too proud to admit that he was out of his depth and would welcome any help. 
anyhow i'd rather have you than scotland yard mr holmes said he if the yard gets called into a case then the local loses all credit for success and may be blamed for failure now you play straight so i've heard i need not appear in the matter at all said holmes to the evident relief of our melancholy acquaintance if i can clear it up i don't ask to have my name mentioned well that's very handsome of you i am sure and your friend dr watson can be trusted i know now mr holmes as we walk down to the place there is one question i should like to ask you i'd breathe it to no soul but you he looked round as though he hardly dare utter the words don't you think there might be a case against mr neil gibson himself i have been considering that you've not seen miss dunbar she is a wonderful fine woman in every way he may well have wished his wife out of the road and these americans are readier with pistols than our folk are it was his pistol you know was that clearly made out yes sir it was one of a pair that he had one of a pair where's the other well the gentleman has a lot of firearms of one sort and another we never quite matched that particular pistol but the box was made for two if it was one of a pair you should surely be able to match it well we have them all laid out at the house if you would care to look them over later perhaps i think we will walk down together and have a look at the scene of the tragedy this conversation had taken place in the little front room of sergeant coventry's humble cottage which served as the local police station a walk of half a mile or so across a wind-swept heath all golden bronze with the fading ferns brought us to a side gate opening into the grounds of the thor place estate a path led us through the pheasant preserves and then from a clearing we saw the widespread half-timbered house half tudor and half georgian upon the crest of the hill beside us there was a long reedy pool constricted in the centre where the main carriage drive passed over a stone bridge but swelling into small lakes on either side our guide paused at the mouth of this bridge and he pointed to the ground that was where mrs gibson's body lay i marked it by that stone i understand that you were there before it was moved yes they sent for me at once who did mr gibson himself the moment the alarm was given and he had rushed down with others from the house he insisted that nothing should be moved until the police should arrive that was sensible i gathered from the newspaper report that the shot was fired from close quarters yes sir very close near the right temple just behind it sir how did the body lie on the back sir no trace of a struggle no marks no weapon the short note from miss dunbar was clutched in her left hand clutched you say yes sir we could hardly open the fingers that is of great importance it excludes the idea that anyone could have placed the note there after death in order to furnish a false clue dear me the note as i remember was quite short i will be at thor bridge at nine o'clock g dunbar was that not so yes sir did miss dunbar admit writing it yes sir what was her explanation her defence was reserved for the assizes she would say nothing the problem is certainly a very interesting one 
the point of the letter is very obscure is it not well sir said the guide it seemed if i may be so bold as to say so the only really clear point in the whole case holmes shook his head granting that the letter is genuine and was really written it was certainly received some time before say one hour or two why then was this lady still clasping it in her left hand why should she carry it so carefully she did not need to refer to it in the interview does it not seem remarkable well sir as you put it perhaps it does i think i should like to sit quietly for a few minutes and think it out he seated himself upon the stone ledge of the bridge and i could see his quick gray eyes darting their questioning glances in every direction suddenly he sprang up again and ran across to the opposite parapet whipped his lens from his pocket and began to examine the stonework this is curious said he yes sir we saw the chip on the ledge i expect it's been done by some passer-by the stonework was gray but at this one point it showed white for a space not larger than a sixpence when examined closely one could see that the surface was chipped as by a sharp blow it took some violence to do that said holmes thoughtfully with his cane he struck the ledge several times without leaving a mark yes it was a hard knock in a curious place too it was not from above but from below for you see that it is on the lower edge of the parapet but it is at least fifteen feet from the body yes it is fifteen feet from the body it may have nothing to do with the matter but it is a point worth noting i do not think that we have anything more to learn here uh, there were no footsteps you say the ground was iron hard sir there were no traces at all then we can go we will go up to the house first and look over these weapons of which you speak then we shall get on to winchester for i should desire to see miss dunbar before we go farther mr neil gibson had not returned from town but we saw in the house the neurotic mr bates who had called upon us in the morning he showed us with a sinister relish the formidable array of firearms of various shapes and sizes which his employer had accumulated in the course of an adventurous life mr gibson has his enemies as any one would expect who knew him and his methods said he he sleeps with a loaded revolver in the drawer beside his bed he is a man of violence sir and there are times when all of us are afraid of him i am sure that the poor lady who has passed was often terrified did you ever witness physical violence towards her no i cannot say that but i have heard hard words which were nearly as bad words of cold cutting contempt even before the servants a millionaire does not seem to shine in private life remarked holmes as we made our way to the station well watson we have come on a good many facts some of the new ones and yet i seem some way from my conclusion in spite of the very evident dislike which mr bates has to his employer i gather from him that when the alarm came he was undoubtedly in his library dinner was over at eight-thirty and all was normal up till then it is true that the alarm was somewhat late in the evening but the tragedy certainly occurred about the hour named in the note 
There is no evidence at all that Mr. Gibson had been out of doors since his return from town at five o'clock. On the other hand, Miss Dunbar, as I understand it, admits that she had made an appointment to meet Mrs. Gibson at the bridge. Beyond this she would say nothing, as her lawyer had advised her to reserve her defence. We have several very vital questions to ask that young lady, and my mind will not be easy until we have seen her. I must confess that the case would seem to me to be very black against her if it were not for one thing. And what is that, Holmes? The finding of the pistol in her wardrobe. Dear me, Holmes, I cried, that seemed to me the most damning incident of all. Not so, Watson. It had struck me even at my first perfunctory reading as very strange, and now that I am in closer touch with the case, it is my only firm ground for hope. We must look for consistency. Where there is a want of it, we must suspect deception. I hardly follow you. Well, now, Watson, suppose for a moment that we visualize you in the character of a woman who, in a cold, premeditated fashion, is about to get rid of a rival. You have planned it. A note has been written. The victim has come. You have your weapon. The crime is done. It has been workmanlike and complete. Do you tell me that after carrying out so crafty a crime, you would now ruin your reputation as a criminal by forgetting to fling your weapon into those adjacent reed beds which would forever cover it, but you must needs carry it carefully home and put it in your own wardrobe, the very first place that would be searched? Your best friends would hardly call you a schemer, Watson, and yet I could not picture you doing anything so crude as that. In the excitement of the moment, no, no, Watson, I will not admit that it is possible. Where a crime is coolly premeditated, then the means of covering it are coolly premeditated also. I hope, therefore, that we are in the presence of a serious misconception. But there is so much to explain. Well, we shall set about explaining it. When once your point of view is changed, the very thing which was so damning becomes a clue to the truth. For example, there is this revolver. Miss Dunbar disclaims all knowledge of it. On our new theory, she is speaking truth when she says so. Therefore, it was placed in her wardrobe. Who placed it there? Someone who wished to incriminate her. Was not that person the actual criminal? You see how we come at once upon a most fruitful line of inquiry. We were compelled to spend the night at Winchester, as the formalities had not yet been completed, but next morning, in the company of Mr. Joyce Cummings, the rising barrister who was entrusted with the defence, we were allowed to see the young lady in her cell. I had expected from all that we had heard to see a beautiful woman, but I can never forget the effect which Miss Dunbar produced upon me. It was no wonder that even the masterful millionaire had found in her something more powerful than himself, something which could control and guide him. One felt, too, as one looked at that strong, clear-cut, and yet sensitive face, that even should she be capable of some impetuous deed, none the less there was an innate nobility of character which would make her influence always for the good. She was a brunette, tall, with a noble figure and commanding presence, but her dark eyes had in them the appealing, helpless expression of the hunted creature who feels the nets around it, but can see no way out from the toils. 
now as she realized the presence and the help of my famous friend there came a touch of color in her wan cheeks and a light of hope began to glimmer in the glance which she turned upon us perhaps mr neil gibson has told you something of what occurred between us she asked in a low agitated voice yes holmes answered you need not pain yourself by entering into that part of the story after seeing you i am prepared to accept mr gibson's statement both as to the influence which you had over him and as to the innocence of your relations with him but why was the whole situation not brought out in court it seemed to me incredible that such a charge could be sustained i thought that if we waited the whole thing must clear itself up without our being compelled to enter into painful details of the inner life of the family but i understand that far from clearing it has become even more serious my dear young lady cried holmes earnestly i beg you to have no illusions upon the point mr cummings here would assure you that all the cards are at present against us and that we must do everything that is possible if we are to win clear it would be a cruel deception to pretend that you are not in very great danger give me all the help you can then to get at the truth i will conceal nothing tell us then of your true relations with mr gibson's wife she hated me mr holmes she hated me with all the fervour of her tropical nature she was a woman who would do nothing by halves and the measure of her love for her husband was the measure also of her hatred for me it is probable that she misunderstood our relations i would not wish to wrong her but she loved so vividly in a physical sense that she could hardly understand the mental and even spiritual tie which held her husband to me or imagine that it was only my desire to influence his power to good ends which kept me under his roof i can see now that i was wrong nothing could justify me in remaining where i was a cause of unhappiness and yet it is certain that the unhappiness would have remained even if i had left the house now miss dunbar said holmes i beg you to tell us exactly what occurred that evening i can tell you the truth so far as i know it mr holmes but i am in a position to prove nothing and there are points the most vital points which i can neither explain nor can i imagine any explanation if you will find the facts perhaps others may find the explanation with regard then to my presence at thor bridge that night i received a note from mrs gibson in the morning it lay on the table in the schoolroom and it may have been left there by her own hand it implored me to see her there after dinner said she had something important to say to me and asked me to leave an answer on the sundial in the garden as she desired no one to be in our confidence i saw no reason for such secrecy but i did as she asked accepting the appointment she asked me to destroy her note and i burned it in the schoolroom grate she was very much afraid of her husband who treated her with a harshness for which i frequently reproached him and i could only imagine that she acted in this way because she did not wish him to know of our interview yet she kept your reply very carefully yes i was surprised to hear that she had it in her hand when she died well what happened then i went down as i had promised when i reached the bridge she was waiting for me never did i realize till that moment how this poor creature hated me 
she was like a madwoman indeed i think she was a madwoman subtly mad with the deep power of deception which insane people may have how else could she have met me with unconcern every day and yet had so raging a hatred of me in her heart i will not say what she said she poured her whole wild fury out in burning and horrible words i did not even answer i could not it was dreadful to see her i put my hands to my ears and rushed away when i left her she was standing still shrieking out her curses at me in the mouth of the bridge where she was afterwards found within a few yards from the spot and yet presuming that she met her death shortly after you left her you heard no shot no i heard nothing but indeed mr holmes i was so agitated and horrified by this terrible outbreak that i rushed to get back to the peace of my own room and i was incapable of noticing anything which happened you say that you returned to your room did you leave it again before next morning yes when the alarm came and the poor creature had met her death i ran out with the others did you see mr gibson yes he had just returned from the bridge when i saw him he had sent for the doctor and the police. Did he seem to you much perturbed? Mr. Gibson is a very strong, self-contained man. I do not think that he would ever show his emotions on the surface. But I, who knew him so well, could see that he was deeply concerned. Then we come to the all-important point. This pistol that was found in your room. Had you ever seen it before? Never, I swear it when was it found next morning when the police made their search among your clothes yes on the floor of my wardrobe under my dresses you could not guess how long it had been there it had not been there the morning before how do you know because i tidied out the wardrobe that is final then someone came into your room and placed the pistol there in order to inculpate you it must have been so. And when? It could only have been at meal-time, or else at the hours when I would be in the schoolroom with the children. As you were when you got the note? Yes, from that time onwards for the whole morning. Thank you, Miss Dunbar. Is there any other point which could help me in the investigation? I can think of none. There was some sign of violence on the stonework of the bridge, a perfectly fresh chip just opposite the body. Could you suggest any possible explanation of that? Surely it must be a mere coincidence. Curious, Miss Dunbar, very curious. Why should it appear at the very time of the tragedy, and why at that very place? But what could have caused it? Only great violence could have such an effect. Holmes did not answer. His pale, eager face had suddenly assumed that tense, far-away expression which I had learned to associate with the supreme manifestations of his genius. So evident was the crisis in his mind that none of us dared to speak, and we sat, barrister, prisoner, and myself, watching him in a concentrated and absorbed silence. Suddenly he sprang from his chair, vibrating with nervous energy and the pressing need for action. "'Come, Watson, come!' he cried. "'What is it, Mr. Holmes?' "'Never mind, my dear lady, you will hear from me, Mr. Cummings. With the help of the God of Justice, I will give you a case which will make England ring. 
you will get news by to-morrow miss dunbar and meanwhile take my assurance that the clouds are lifting and that i have every hope that the light of truth is breaking through it was not a long journey from winchester to thor place but it was long to me in my impatience while for holmes it was evident that it seemed endless for in his nervous restlessness he could not sit still but paced the carriage or drummed with his long sensitive fingers upon the cushions beside him suddenly however as we neared our destination he seated himself opposite to me we had a first-class carriage to ourselves and laying a hand upon each of my knees he looked into my eyes with the peculiarly mischievous gaze which was characteristic of his more imp-like moods watson said he i have some recollection that you go armed upon these excursions of ours it was as well for him that i did so for he took little care for his own safety when his mind was once absorbed by a problem so that more than once my revolver had been a good friend in need i reminded him of the fact yes yes i am a little absent-minded in such matters but have you your revolver on you i produced it from my hip pocket a short handy but very serviceable little weapon he undid the catch shook out the cartridges and examined it with care it's heavy remarkably heavy said he yes it is a solid bit of work he mused over it for a minute do you know watson said he i believe your revolver is going to have a very intimate connection with the mystery which we are investigating my dear holmes you are joking no watson i am very serious there is a test before us if the test comes off all will be clear and the test will depend upon the conduct of this little weapon one cartridge out now we will replace the other five and put on the safety catch so that increases the weight and makes it a better reproduction i had no glimmer of what was in his mind nor did he enlighten me but sat lost in thought until we pulled up in the little hampshire station we secured a ramshackle trap and in a quarter of an hour were at the house of our confidential friend the sergeant a clue mr holmes what is it it all depends upon the behaviour of dr watson's revolver said my friend here it is now officer can you give me ten yards of string the village shop provided a ball of stout twine i think that this is all we will need said holmes now if you please we will get off on what i hope is the last stage of our journey the sun was setting and turning the rolling hampshire moor into a wonderful autumnal panorama the sergeant with many critical and incredulous glances which showed his deep doubts of the sanity of my companion lurched along beside us as we approached the scene of the crime i could see that my friend under all his habitual coolness was in truth deeply agitated yes he said in answer to my remark you have seen me miss my mark before watson i have an instinct for such things and yet it has sometimes played me false it seemed a certainty when first it flashed across my mind in the cell at winchester but one drawback of an active mind is that one can always conceive alternative explanations which would make our scent a false one and yet and yet well watson we can but try as he walked he had firmly tied one end of the string to the handle of the revolver 
we had now reached the scene of the tragedy. With great care, he marked out, under the guidance of the policeman, the exact spot where the body had been stretched. He then hunted among the heather and ferns until he found a considerable stone. This he secured to the other end of his line of string, and he hung it over the parapet of the bridge so that it swung clear above the water. He then stood on the fatal spot some distance from the edge of the bridge with my revolver in his hand, the string being taut between the weapon and the heavy stone on the farther side. "'Now for it!' he cried. At the words, he raised the pistol to his head and then let go his grip. In an instant it had been whisked away by the weight of the stone, had struck with a sharp crack against the parapet, and had vanished over the side into the water. It had hardly gone before Holmes was kneeling beside the stonework, and a joyous cry showed that he had found what he expected. "'Was there ever a more exact demonstration?' he cried. "'See, Watson, your revolver has solved the problem.' As he spoke, he pointed to a second chip of the exact size and shape of the first, which had appeared on the underside of the stone balustrade. "'We'll stay at the inn tonight,' he continued, as he rose and faced the astonished sergeant. "'You will, of course, get a grappling hook, and you will easily restore my friend's revolver. You will also find beside it the revolver, string, and weight, with which this vindictive woman attempted to disguise her own crime, and to fasten a charge of murder upon an innocent victim. You can let Mr. Gibson know that I will see him in the morning, when steps can be taken for Miss Dunbar's vindication.' Late that evening, as we sat together smoking our pipes in the village inn, Holmes gave me a brief review of what had passed. "'I fear, Watson,' said he, "'that you will not improve any reputation which I may have acquired by adding the case of the Thorbridge mystery to your annals. I have been sluggish in mind, and wanting in that mixture of imagination and reality which is the basis of my art.' I confess that the chip in the stonework was a sufficient clue to suggest the true solution, and that I blame myself for not having attained it sooner. It must be admitted that the workings of this unhappy woman's mind were deep and subtle, so that it was no very simple matter to unravel her plot. I do not think that in our adventures we have ever come across a stranger example of what perverted love can bring about. Whether Miss Dunbar was her rival in a physical or in a merely mental sense seems to have been equally unforgivable in her eyes. No doubt she blamed this innocent lady for all those harsh dealings and unkind words with which her husband tried to repel her to demonstrative affection. Her first resolution was to end her own life. Her second was to do it in such a way as to involve her victim in a fate which was worse far than any sudden death could be. We can follow the various steps quite clearly, and they show a remarkable subtlety of mind. A note was extracted very cleverly from Miss Dunbar, which would make it appear that she had chosen the scene of the crime. In her anxiety that it should be discovered, she somewhat overdid it by holding it in her hand to the last. This alone should have excited my suspicions earlier than it did. Then she took one of her husband's revolvers, there was, as you saw, an arsenal in the house, and kept it for her own use. A similar one she concealed that morning in Miss Dunbar's wardrobe, after discharging one barrel, 
which she could easily do in the woods without attracting attention. She then went down to the bridge where she had contrived this exceedingly ingenious method for getting rid of her weapon. When Miss Dunbar appeared, she used her last breath in pouring out her hatred, and then, when she was out of hearing, carried out her terrible purpose. Every link is now in its place, and the chain is complete. The papers may ask why the mirror was not dragged in the first instance, but it is easy to be wise after the event, and in any case the expanse of a reed-filled lake is no easy matter to drag unless you have a clear perception of what you are looking for and where. Well, Watson, we have helped a remarkable woman, and also a formidable man. Should they in the future join their forces, as seems not unlikely, the financial world may find that Mr. Neil Gibson has learned something in that schoolroom of sorrow where our earthly lessons are taught. End of the Problem of Thor Bridge Section 8 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland Story 8 The Adventure of the Creeping Man Mr. Sherlock Holmes was always of opinion that I should publish the singular facts connected with Professor Presbury, if only to dispel once for all the ugly rumors which some twenty years ago agitated the university and were echoed in the learned societies of London. There were, however, certain obstacles in the way, and the true history of this curious case remained entombed in the tin box which contains so many records of my friend's adventures. Now we have at last obtained permission to ventilate the facts which formed one of the very last cases handled by Holmes before his retirement from practice. Even now a certain reticence and discretion have to be observed in laying the matter before the public. It was one Sunday evening, early in September of the year 1903, that I received one of Holmes's laconic messages. Come at once, if convenient. If inconvenient, come all the same. S.H. The relations between us in those latter days were peculiar. He was a man of habits, narrow and concentrated habits, and I had become one of them. As an institution, I was like the violin, the shag tobacco, the old black pipe, the index books, and others perhaps less excusable. When it was a case of active work and a comrade was needed upon whose nerve he could place some reliance, my role was obvious. But apart from this I had uses. I was a whetstone for his mind. I stimulated him. He liked to think aloud in my presence. His remarks could hardly be said to be made to me. Many of them would have been as appropriately addressed to his bedstead. But nonetheless, having formed the habit, it had become in some way helpful that I should register and interject. If I irritated him by a certain methodical slowness in my mentality, that irritation served only to make his own flame-like intuitions and impressions flash up the more vividly and swiftly. Such was my humble role in our alliance. When I arrived at Baker Street I found him huddled up in his armchair, with updrawn knees, his pipe in his mouth, and his brow furrowed with thought. It was clear that he was in the throes of some vexatious problem. 
With a wave of his hand he indicated my old armchair, but otherwise for half an hour he gave no sign that he was aware of my presence. Then, with a start, he seemed to come from his reverie, and with his usual whimsical smile he greeted me back to what had once been my home. "'You will excuse a certain abstraction of mind, my dear Watson,' said he. "'Some curious facts have been submitted to me within the last twenty-four hours, and they in turn have given rise to some speculations of a more general character.' I have serious thoughts of writing a small monograph upon the uses of dogs in the work of the detective. "'But surely, Holmes, this has been explored,' said I. "'Bloodhounds? Sleuthhounds? No, no, Watson, that side of the matter is, of course, obvious. But there is another which is far more subtle. You may recollect that in the case which you in your sensational way coupled with the copper beeches, I was able, by watching the mind of the child, to form a deduction as to the criminal habits of the very smug and respectable father. Yes, I remember it well. My line of thoughts about dogs is analogous. A dog reflects the family life. Who ever saw a frisky dog in a gloomy family, or a sad dog in a happy one? Snarling people have snarling dogs. Dangerous people have dangerous ones, and their passing moods may reflect the passing moods of others. I shook my head. Surely, Holmes, this is a little far-fetched, said I. He had refilled his pipe and resumed his seat, taking no notice of my comment. The practical application of what I have said is very close to the problem which I am investigating. It is a tangled skein, you understand, and I am looking for a loose end. One possible loose end lies in the question, why does Professor Presbury's faithful wolfhound Roy endeavor to bite him? I sank back in my chair in some disappointment. Was it for so trivial a question as this that I had been summoned from my work? Holmes glanced across at me. The same old Watson, said he, you never learn that the gravest issues may depend upon the smallest things. But is it not on the face of it strange that a staid, elderly philosopher—you heard of Presbury, of course, the famous Camford physiologist—that such a man whose friend has been his devoted wolfhound should now have been twice attacked by his own dog? What do you make of it? The dog is ill. Well, that has to be considered. But he attacks no one else nor does he apparently molest his master, save on very special occasions. Curious, Watson, very curious. But young Mr. Bennet is before his time, if that is his ring. I had hoped to have a longer chat with you before he came. There was a quick step on the stairs, a sharp tap at the door, and a moment later the new client presented himself. He was a tall, handsome youth, about thirty, well-dressed and elegant, but with something in his bearing which suggested the shyness of the student rather than the self-possession of the man of the world. He shook hands with Holmes, and then looked with some surprise at me. "'This matter is very delicate, Mr. Holmes,' he said. "'Consider the relation in which I stand to Professor Presbury, both privately and publicly. I really can hardly justify myself if I speak before any third person.' "'Have no fear, Mr. Bennet.' 
Dr. Watson is the very soul of discretion, and I can assure you that this is a matter in which I am very likely to need an assistant. As you like, Mr. Holmes, you will, I am sure, understand my having some reserves in the matter. You will appreciate it, Watson, when I tell you that this gentleman, Mr. Trevor Bennett, is professional assistant to the great scientist, lives under his roof, and is engaged to his only daughter. Certainly we must agree that the professor has every claim upon his loyalty and devotion. But it may best be shown by taking the necessary steps to clear up this strange mystery. I hope so, Mr. Holmes. That is my one object. Does Dr. Watson know the situation? I have not had time to explain it. Then perhaps I had better go over the ground again before explaining some fresh developments. I will do so myself, said Holmes, in order to show that I have the events in their due order. The Professor Watson is a man of European reputation. His life has been academic. There has never been a breath of scandal. He is a widower with one daughter, Edith. He is, I gather, a man of very virile and positive, one might almost say combative, character. So the matter stood until a very few months ago. Then the current of his life was broken. He is sixty-one years of age, but he became engaged to the daughter of Professor Morphy, his colleague in the chair of comparative anatomy. It was not, as I understand, the reasoned courting of an elderly man, but rather the passionate frenzy of youth, for no one could have shown himself a more devoted lover. The lady, Alice Morphy, was a very perfect girl, both in mind and body, so that there was every excuse for the professor's infatuation. Nonetheless, it did not meet with full approval in his own family. "'We thought it rather excessive,' said our visitor. "'Exactly. Excessive and a little violent and unnatural. Professor Presbury was rich, however, and there was no objection on the part of the father.' The daughter, however, had other views, and there were already several candidates for her hand, who, if they were less eligible from a worldly point of view, were at least more of an age. The girl seemed to like the professor in spite of his eccentricities. It was only age which stood in the way. About this time a little mystery suddenly clouded the normal routine of the professor's life. He did what he had never done before— he left home, and gave no indication where he was going. He was away a fortnight, and returned looking rather travel-worn. He made no allusion to where he had been, although he was usually the frankest of men. It chanced, however, that our client here, Mr. Bennett, received a letter from a fellow student in Prague, who said that he was glad to have seen Professor Presbury there, although he had not been able to talk to him. Only in this way did his own household learn where he had been. Now comes the point. From that time onwards a curious change came over the professor. He became furtive and sly. Those around him had always the feeling that he was not the man that they had known, but that he was under some shadow which had darkened his higher qualities. His intellect was not affected. His lectures were as brilliant as ever, but always there was something new, something sinister and unexpected. His daughter, who was devoted to him, tried again and again to resume the old relations, 
than to penetrate this mask which her father seemed to have put on. You, sir, as I understand, did the same, but all was in vain. And now, Mr. Bennet, tell in your own words the incident of the letters. You must understand, Dr. Watson, that the professor had no secrets from me. If I were his son or his younger brother, I could not have more completely enjoyed his confidence. As his secretary, I handled every paper which came to him, and I opened and subdivided his letters. Shortly after his return, all this was changed. He told me that certain letters might come to him from London, which would be marked by a cross under the stamp. These were to be set aside for his own eyes only. I may say that several of these did pass through my hands, that they had the E.C. mark, and were in an illiterate handwriting. If he answered them at all, the answers did not pass through my hands, nor into the letter-basket in which our correspondence was collected. And the box, said Holmes. Ah, yes, the box. The professor brought back a little wooden box from his travels. It was the one thing which suggested a continental tour, for it was one of those quaint carved things which one associates with Germany. This he placed in his instrument cupboard. One day, in looking for a cannula, I took up the box. To my surprise, he was very angry and reproved me, in words which were quite savage, for my curiosity. It was the first time such a thing had happened, and I was deeply hurt. I endeavoured to explain that it was a mere accident that I had touched the box, but all the evening I was conscious that he looked at me harshly, and that the incident was rankling in his mind. Mr. Bennet drew a little diary book from his pocket. That was on July 2nd said he. "'You are certainly an admirable witness,' said Holmes. "'I may need some of these dates which you have noted.' "'I learned the method, among other things, from my great teacher. From the time that I observed abnormality in his behaviour, I felt that it was my duty to study his case. Thus I have it here that it was on that very day, July 2nd, that Roy attacked the professor as he came from his study into the hall.' Again, on July 11th, there was a scene of the same sort, and then I have a note of yet another upon July 20th. After that, we had to banish Roy to the stables. He was a dear, affectionate animal, but I fear I weary you. Mr. Bennet spoke in a tone of reproach, for it was very clear that Holmes was not listening. His face was rigid, and his eyes gazed abstractedly at the ceiling. With an effort, he recovered himself— "'Singular, most singular,' he murmured. "'These details were new to me, Mr. Bennet. "'I think we have now fairly gone over the old ground, have we not? "'But you spoke of some fresh developments.' "'The pleasant open face of our visitor clouded over, "'shadowed by some grim remembrance. "'What I speak of occurred the night before last,' said he. I was lying awake about two in the morning when I was aware of a dull, muffled sound coming from the passage. I opened my door and peeped out. I should explain that the professor sleeps at the end of the passage. The date being, asked Holmes. Our visitor was clearly annoyed at so irrelevant an interruption. I have said, sir, that it was the night before last, that is, September 4th. Holmes nodded and smiled. Pray continue said he. 
he sleeps at the end of the passage and would have to pass my door in order to reach the staircase it was a really terrifying experience mr holmes i think that i am as strong-nerved as my neighbors but i was shaken by what i saw the passage was dark save that one window halfway along it through a patch of light i could see that something was coming along the passage something dark and crouching then suddenly it emerged into the light and i saw that it was he he was crawling mr holmes crawling he was not quite on his hands and knees i should rather say on his hands and feet with his face sunk between his hands yet he seemed to move with ease i was so paralyzed by the sight that it was not until he had reached my door that i was able to step forward and ask if i could assist him his answer was extraordinary he sprang up spat out some atrocious word at me and hurried on past me and down the staircase i waited for about an hour but he did not come back it must have been daylight before he regained his room well watson what make you of that asked holmes with the air of the pathologist who presents a rare specimen lumbago possibly i have known a severe attack make a man walk in just such a way and nothing would be more trying to the temper good watson you always keep us flat-footed on the ground but we can hardly accept lumbago since he was able to stand erect in a moment he was never better in health said bennett in fact he is stronger than i have known him for years but there are the facts mr holmes it is not a case in which we can consult the police and yet we are utterly at our wit's end as to what to do and we feel in some strange way that we are drifting towards disaster edith miss presbury feels as i do that we cannot wait passively any longer it is certainly a very curious and suggestive case what do you think watson speaking as a medical man said i it appears to be a case for an alienist the old gentleman's cerebral processes were disturbed by the love affair he made a journey abroad in the hope of breaking himself of the passion his letters and the box may be connected with some other private transaction a loan perhaps or share certificates which are in the box and the wolfhound no doubt disapproved of the financial bargain no no watson there is more in it than this now i can only suggest what sherlock holmes was about to suggest will never be known for at this moment the door opened and a young lady was shown into the room as she appeared mr bennett sprang up with a cry and ran forward with his hands out to meet those which she had herself outstretched edith dear nothing the matter i hope i felt i must follow you oh jack i have been so dreadfully frightened it is awful to be there alone mr holmes this is the young lady i spoke of this is my fiancee we were gradually coming to that conclusion were we not watson holmes answered with a smile i take it miss presbury that there is some fresh development in the case and that you thought we should know our new visitor a bright handsome girl of the conventional english type smiled back at holmes as she seated herself beside mr bennett when i found mr bennett had left his hotel i thought i should probably find him here of course he had told me that he would consult you 
But, oh, Mr. Holmes, can you do nothing for my poor father? I have hopes, Miss Presbury, but the case is still obscure. Perhaps what you have to say may throw some fresh light upon it. It was last night, Mr. Holmes. He had been very strange all day. I am sure that there are times when he has no recollection of what he does. He lives as in a strange dream. Yesterday was such a day. It was not my father with whom I lived. His outward shell was there, but it was not really he. Tell me what happened. I was awakened in the night by the dog barking most furiously. Poor Roy, he is chained now near the stable. I may say that I always sleep with my door locked, for, as Jack, as Mr. Bennet will tell you, we all have a feeling of impending danger. My room is on the second floor. It happened that the blind was up in my window, and there was bright moonlight outside. As I lay with my eyes fixed upon the square of light, listening to the frenzied barkings of the dog, I was amazed to see my father's face looking in at me. Mr. Holmes, I nearly died of surprise and horror. There it was, pressed against the window-pane, and one hand seemed to be raised as if to push up the window. If that window had opened, I think I should have gone mad. It was no delusion, Mr. Holmes. Don't deceive yourself by thinking so. I dare say it was twenty seconds or so that I lay paralyzed and washed the face. Then it vanished. But I could not, I could not spring out of bed and look out after it. I lay cold and shivering till morning. At breakfast he was sharp and fierce in manner, and made no allusion to the adventure of the night. Neither did I, but I gave an excuse for coming to town, and here I am. Holmes looked thoroughly surprised at Miss Bresbury's narrative. My dear young lady, you say that your room is on the second floor. Is there a long ladder in the garden? No, Mr. Holmes, that is the amazing part of it. There is no possible way of reaching the window, and yet he was there. The date being September 5th, said Holmes, that certainly complicates matters. It was the young lady's turn to look surprised. This is the second time that you have alluded to the date, Mr. Holmes, said Bennet. Is it possible that it has any bearing upon the case? It is possible, very possible, and yet I have not my full material at present. Possibly you are thinking of the connection between insanity and faces of the moon? No, I assure you, it was quite a different line of thought. Possibly you can leave your notebook with me, and I will check the dates. Now I think, Watson, that our line of action is perfectly clear. This young lady has informed us, and I have the greatest confidence in her intuition, that her father remembers little or nothing which occurs upon certain dates. We will therefore call upon him as if he had given us an appointment upon such a date. He will put it down to his own lack of memory. Thus we will open our campaign by having a good close view of him. That is excellent, said Mr. Bennet. I warn you, however, that the professor is irascible and violent at times. Holmes smiled. There are reasons why we should come at once, very cogent reasons, if my theories hold good. Tomorrow Mr. Bennet will certainly see us in Camford. There is, if I remember right, an inn called the Checkers, where the port used to be above mediocrity, and the linen was above reproach. I think, Watson, that our lot for the next few days might lie in less pleasant places. 
Monday morning found us on our way to the famous university town, an easy effort on the part of Holmes, who had no roots to pull up, but one which involved frantic planning and hurrying on my part, as my practice was by this time not inconsiderable. Holmes made no allusion to the case until after we had deposited our suitcases at the ancient hostel of which he had spoken. I think, Watson, that we can catch the professor just before lunch. He lectures at eleven, and should have an interval at home. What possible excuse have we for calling? Holmes glanced at his notebook. There was a period of excitement upon August 26th. We will assume that he is a little hazy as to what he does at such times. If we insist that we are there by appointment, I think he will hardly venture to contradict us. Have you the effrontery necessary to put it through? We can but try. Excellent, Watson. Compound of the busy bee and excelsior, we can but try the motto of the firm. A friendly native will surely guide us. Such a one on the back of a smart hansom swept us past a row of ancient colleges, and finally, turning into a tree-lined drive, pulled up at the door of a charming house, girt round with lawns and covered with purple wisteria. Professor Presbury was certainly surrounded with every sign, not only of comfort but of luxury. Even as we pulled up, a grizzled head appeared at the front window, and we were aware of a pair of keen eyes from under shaggy brows which surveyed us through large horn glasses. A moment later we were actually in his sanctum, and the mysterious scientist, whose vagaries had brought us from London, was standing before us. There was certainly no sign of eccentricity, either in his manner or appearance, for he was a portly, large-featured man, grave, tall, and frock-coated with the dignity of bearing which a lecturer needs. His eyes were his most remarkable feature, keen, observant, and clever to the verge of cunning. He looked at our cards. "'Pray sit down, gentlemen. What can I do for you?' Mr. Holmes smiled amiably. "'It was the question which I was about to put to you, Professor.' "'To me, sir?' "'Possibly there is some mistake.' I heard through a second person that Professor Presbury of Camford had need of my services. Oh, indeed. It seemed to me that there was a malicious sparkle in the intense grey eyes. You heard that, did you? May I ask the name of your informant? I am sorry, Professor, but the matter was rather confidential. If I have made a mistake, there is no harm done. I can only express my regret. Not at all. I should wish to go further into this matter. It interests me. Have you any scrap of writing, any letter or telegram to bear out your assertion? No, I have not. I presume that you do not go so far as to assert that I summoned you? I would rather answer no questions, said Holmes. No, I dare say not, said the professor with asperity. However, that particular one can be answered very easily without your aid. He walked across the room to the bell. Our London friend, Mr. Bennet, answered the call. "'Come in, Mr. Bennet. These two gentlemen have come from London under the impression that they have been summoned. You handle all my correspondence. Have you a note of anything going to a person named Holmes?' "'No, sir,' Bennet answered with a flush. "'That is conclusive,' said the professor, glaring angrily at my companion. "'Now, sir.' He leaned forward with his two hands upon the table. "'It seems to me that your position is a very questionable one.' Holmes shrugged his shoulders. 
I can only repeat that I am sorry that we have made a needless intrusion. Hardly enough, Mr. Holmes, the old man cried in a high, screaming voice, with extraordinary malignancy upon his face. He got between us and the door as he spoke, and he shook his two hands at us with furious passion. You can hardly get out of it so easily as that. His face was convulsed as he grinned and gibbered at us in his senseless rage. I am convinced that we should have had to fight our way out of the room if Mr. Bennet had not intervened. My dear professor, he cried, consider your position. Consider the scandal at the university. Mr. Holmes is a well-known man. You cannot possibly treat him with such discourtesy. Sorkily, our host, if I may call him so, cleared the path to the door. We were glad to find ourselves outside the house and in the quiet of the tree-lined drive. Holmes seemed greatly amused by the episode. "'Our learned friend's nerves are somewhat out of order,' said he. "'Perhaps our intrusion was a little crude, and yet we have gained that personal contact which I desired. But dear me, Watson, he is surely at our heels. The villain still pursues us.' There were the sounds of running feet behind, but it was to my relief not the formidable professor but his assistant who appeared round the curve of the drive. He came panting up to us. I am sorry, Mr. Holmes. I wish to apologize. My dear sir, there is no need. It is all in the way of professional experience. I have never seen him in a more dangerous mood, but he grows more sinister. You can understand now why his daughter and I are alarmed, and yet his mind is perfectly clear. Too clear, said Holmes. That was my miscalculation. It is evident that his memory is much more reliable than I had thought. By the way, can we before we go see the window of Miss Presbury's room? Mr. Bennet pushed his way through some shrubs, and we had a view of the side of the house. It is there, the second on the left. Dear me, it seems hardly accessible. And yet you will observe that there is a creeper below and a water-pipe above, which gives some foothold. I could not climb it myself, said Mr. Bennet. Very likely. It would certainly be a dangerous exploit for any normal man. There was one other thing I wished to tell you, Mr. Holmes. I have the address of the man in London to whom the professor writes. He seems to have written this morning, and I got it from his blotting paper. It is an ignoble position for a trusted secretary, but what else can I do? Holmes glanced at the paper and put it into his pocket. Dorak, a curious name. Slavonic, I imagine. Well, it is an important link in the chain. We return to London this afternoon, Mr. Bennet. I see no good purpose to be served by our remaining. We cannot arrest the professor because he has done no crime, nor can we place him under constraint, for he cannot be proved to be mad. No action is as yet possible. Then what on earth are we to do? A little patience, Mr. Bennet. Things will soon develop. Unless I am mistaken, next Tuesday may mark a crisis. Certainly we shall be in Camford on that day. Meanwhile, the general position is undeniably unpleasant, and if Miss Presbury can prolong her visit, that is easy. Then let her stay till we can assure her that all danger is past. Meanwhile, let him have his way and do not cross him. So long as he is in a good humour, all is well. There he is, said Bennet in a startled whisper. 
Looking between the branches, we saw the tall, erect figure emerge from the hall door and look around him. He stood leaning forward, his hands swinging straight before him, his head turning from side to side. The secretary, with a last wave, slipped off among the trees, and we saw him presently rejoin his employer, the two entering the house together in what seemed to be an animated and even excited conversation. "'I expect the old gentleman has been putting two and two together,' said Holmes, as we walked hotelwards. "'He struck me as having a particularly clear and logical brain, from the little I saw of him. Explosive, no doubt, but then, from his point of view, he has something to explode about, if detectives are put on his track and he suspects his own household of doing it. I rather fancy that friend Bennett is in for an uncomfortable time.' Holmes stopped at the post office and sent off a telegram on our way. The answer reached us in the evening, and he tossed it across to me. "'Have visited the commercial road and seen Dorak. Suave person, bohemian, elderly, keeps large general store. Mercer.' "'Mercer is since your time,' said Holmes. "'He is my general utility man who looks up routine business.' It was important to know something of the man with whom our professor was so secretly corresponding. His nationality connects him with the Prague visit. "'Thank goodness that something connects with something,' said I. "'At present we seem to be faced with a long series of inexplicable incidents with no bearing upon each other. For example, what possible connection can there be between an angry wolfhound and a visit to Bohemia?' or either of them with a man crawling down a passage at night. As to your dates, that is the biggest mystification of all. Holmes smiled and rubbed his hands. We were, I may say, seated in the old sitting-room of an ancient hotel with a bottle of the famous vintage, of which Holmes had spoken, on the table between us. Well, now, let us take the dates first, said he, his fingertips together, and his manner as if he were addressing a class. This excellent young man's diary shows that there was trouble upon July 2nd, and from then onwards it seems to have been at nine-day intervals, with, so far as I remember, only one exception. Thus the last outbreak upon Friday was on September 3rd, which also falls into the series, as did August 26th, which preceded it, the thing is beyond coincidence. I was forced to agree. Let us then form the provisional theory that every nine days the professor takes some strong drug, which has a passing but highly poisonous effect. His naturally violent nature is intensified by it. He learned to take this drug while he was in Prague, and is now supplied with it by a bohemian intermediary in London. This all hangs together, Watson." "'But the dog, the face at the window, the creeping man in the passage. "'Well, well, we have made a beginning. "'I should not expect any fresh developments until next Tuesday. "'In the meantime, we can only keep in touch with friend Bennett "'and enjoy the amenities of this charming town.' "'In the morning, Mr. Bennett slipped round to bring us the latest report. "'As Holmes had imagined, times had not been easy with him.' Without exactly accusing him of being responsible for our presence, the professor had been very rough and rude in his speech, and evidently felt some strong grievance. This morning he was quite himself again, however, and had delivered his usual brilliant lecture to a crowded class. "'Apart from his queer fits,' said Bennett, 
He is actually more energy and vitality than I can ever remember, nor was his brain ever clearer. But it's not he. It's never the man whom we have known. I don't think you have anything to fear now for a week at least, Holmes answered. I am a busy man, and Dr. Watson has his patients to attend to. Let us agree that we meet here at this hour next Tuesday, and I shall be surprised if before we leave you again we are not able to explain, even if we cannot perhaps put an end to, your troubles. Meanwhile, keep us posted in what occurs. I saw nothing of my friend for the next few days, but on the following Monday evening I had a short note asking me to meet him next day at the train. From what he told me as we travelled up to Camford all was well. The peace of the professor's house had been unruffled, and his own conduct perfectly normal. This also was the report which was given to us by Mr. Bennet himself when he called upon us that evening at our old quarters in the Chequers. He heard from his London correspondent today. There was a letter, and there was a small packet, each with the cross under the stamp which warned me not to touch them. There has been nothing else. That may prove quite enough, said Holmes grimly. Now, Mr. Bennet, we shall, I think, come to some conclusion to-night. If my deductions are correct, we should have an opportunity of bringing matters to a head. In order to do so, it is necessary to hold the professor under observation. I would suggest, therefore, that you remain awake and on the lookout. Should you hear him pass your door, do not interrupt him, but follow him as discreetly as you can. Dr. Watson and I will not be far off. By the way, where is the key of that little box of which you spoke? Upon his watch-chain. I fancy our researches must lie in that direction. At the worst, the lock should not be very formidable. Have you any other able-bodied man on the premises? There is the coachman, MacPhail. Where does he sleep? Over the stables. We might possibly want him. Well, we can do no more until we see how things develop. Good-bye, but I expect that we shall see you before morning. It was nearly midnight before we took our station among some bushes immediately opposite the hall door of the professor. It was a fine night, but chilly, and we were glad of our warm overcoats. There was a breeze, and clouds were scudding across the sky, obscuring from time to time the half-moon. It would have been a dismal vigil, were it not for the expectation and excitement which carried us along, and the assurance of my comrade that we had probably reached the end of the strange sequence of events which had engaged our attention. If the cycle of nine days holds good, then we shall have the professor at his worst to-night, said Holmes. The fact that these strange symptoms began after his visit to Prague, that he is in secret correspondence with a bohemian dealer in London, who presumably represents someone in Prague, and that he received a packet from him this very day, all point in one direction. What he takes and why he takes it are still beyond our ken, but that it emanates in some way from Prague is clear enough. He takes it under definite directions which regulate this ninth-day system, which was the first point which attracted my attention. But his symptoms are most remarkable. Did you observe his knuckles? I had to confess that I did not thick and horny, in a way which is quite new in my experience. Always look at the hands first, Watson, then cuffs, 
trouser-knees, and boots, very curious knuckles, which can only be explained by the mode of progression observed by... Holmes paused, and suddenly clapped his hand to his forehead. Oh, Watson, Watson, what a fool I have been! It seems incredible, and yet it must be true. All points in one direction. How could I miss seeing the connection of ideas, those knuckles? How could I have passed those knuckles, and the dog, and the ivy? It's surely time that I disappeared into that little farm of my dreams. Look out, Watson. Here he is. We shall have the chance of seeing for ourselves. The hall door had slowly opened, and against the lamplit background we saw the tall figure of Professor Presbury. He was clad in his dressing-gown. As he stood outlined in the doorway, he was erect, but leaning forward with dangling arms, as when we saw him last. Now he stepped forward into the drive, and an extraordinary change came over him. He sank down into a crouching position, and moved along upon his hands and feet, skipping every now and then as if he were overflowing with energy and vitality. He moved along the face of the house and then round the corner. As he disappeared, Bennett slipped through the hall door and softly followed him. "'Come, Watson, come!' cried Holmes, and we stole as softly as we could through the bushes until we had gained a spot whence we could see the other side of the house, which was bathed in the light of the half-moon. The professor was clearly visible, crouching at the foot of the ivy-covered wall. As we watched him, he suddenly began with incredible agility to ascend it. From branch to branch he sprang, sure of foot and firm of grasp, climbing apparently in mere joy at his own powers, with no definite object in view. With his dressing-gown flapping on each side of him, he looked like some huge bat glued against the side of his own house a great square dark patch upon the moonlit wall. Presently he tired of this amusement, and, dropping from branch to branch, he squatted down into the old attitude and moved towards the stables, creeping along in the same strange way as before. The wolfhound was out now, barking furiously and more excited than ever when it actually caught sight of its master. It was straining on its chain and quivering with eagerness and rage. The professor squatted down very deliberately just out of reach of the hound, and began to provoke it in every possible way. He took handfuls of pebbles from the drive and threw them in the dog's face, prodded him with a stick which he had picked up, flipped his hands about only a few inches from the gaping mouth, and endeavoured in every way to increase the animal's fury, which was already beyond all control. In all our adventures I do not know that I have ever seen a more strange sight than this impassive and still dignified figure, crouching frog-like upon the ground and goading to a wilder exhibition of passion the maddened hound, which ramped and raged in front of him by all manner of ingenious and calculated cruelty. And then, in a moment, it happened. It was not the chain that broke, but it was the collar that slipped, for it had been made for a thick-necked Newfoundland. We heard the rattle of falling metal, and the next instant dog and man were rolling on the ground together, the one roaring in rage, the other screaming in a strange shrill falsetto of terror. It was a very narrow thing for the professor's life. The savage creature had him fairly by the throat, its fangs had bitten deep, and he was senseless before we could reach him and drag the two apart. 
It might have been a dangerous task for us, but Bennett's voice and presence brought the great wolfhound instantly to reason. The uproar had brought the sleepy and astonished coachman from his room above the stables. "'I'm not surprised,' said he, shaking his head. "'I've seen him at it before. I knew the dog would get him sooner or later.' The hound was secured, and together we carried the professor up to his room, where Bennett, who had a medical decree, helped me to dress his torn throat. The sharp teeth had passed dangerously near the carotid artery, and the hemorrhage was serious. In half an hour the danger was past. I had given the patient an injection of morphia, and he had sunk into deep sleep. Then, and only then, were we able to look at each other and take stock of the situation. "'I think a first-class surgeon should see him,' said I. "'For God's sake, no!' cried Bennett. "'At present the scandal is confined to our own household. It is safe with us. If it gets beyond these walls, it will never stop. Consider his position at the university, his European reputation, the feelings of his daughter.' "'Quite so,' said Holmes. "'I think it may be quite possible to keep the matter to ourselves, and also to prevent its recurrence, now that we have a free hand.' "'The key from the watch-chain, Mr. Bennett.' "'Macphail will guard the patient and let us know if there is any change. "'Let us see what we can find in the professor's mysterious box.' "'There was not much, but there was enough. "'An empty vial, another nearly full, a hypodermic syringe, "'several letters in a crabbed foreign hand. "'The marks on the envelope showed that they were those "'which had disturbed the routine of the secretary, "'and each was dated from the commercial road "'and signed A. Dorak. "'They were mere invoices to say that a fresh bottle "'was being sent to Professor Presbury "'or receipts to acknowledge the money. "'There was one other envelope, however, "'in a more educated hand "'and bearing the Austrian stamp "'with the postmark of Prague. "'Here we have our material.' cried Holmes, as he tore out the enclosure. "'Honoured colleague,' it ran, "'since your esteemed visit I have thought much of your case, and though in your circumstances there are some special reasons for the treatment, I would nonetheless enjoin caution, as my results have shown that it is not without danger of a kind. It is possible that the serum of anthropoid would have been better. I have, as I explained to you, used black-faced longur, because a specimen was accessible. Langur is, of course, a crawler and climber, while Anthropoid walks erect, and is in all ways nearer. I beg you to take every possible precaution that there be no premature revelation of the process. I have one other client in England, and Dorak is my agent for both. Weekly reports will oblige. Yours with high esteem, H. Lowenstein. Lowenstein, the name brought back to me the memory of some snippet from a newspaper which spoke of an obscure scientist who was striving in some unknown way for the secret of rejuvenescence and the elixir of life. Lowenstein, a prog. Lowenstein, with the wondrous strength-giving serum, tabooed by the profession because he refused to reveal its source. In a few words I said what I remembered. Bennett had taken a manual of zoology from the shelves. Langur, he read, the great black-faced monkey of the Malian slopes, biggest and most human of climbing monkeys. Many details are added. Well, thanks to you, Mr. Holmes, it is very clear that we have traced the evil to its source. 
"'The real source,' said Holmes, "'lies, of course, in that untimely love affair "'which gave our impetuous professor "'the idea that he could only gain his wish "'by turning himself into a younger man. "'When one tries to rise above nature, "'one is liable to fall below it. "'The highest type of man may revert to the animal "'if he leaves the straight road of destiny.' "'He sat musing for a little with the vial in his hand, "'looking at the clear liquid within.' "'When I have written to this man and told him "'that I hold him criminally responsible "'for the poisons which he circulates, "'we will have no more trouble. "'But it may recur. "'Others may find a better way. "'There is danger here, "'a very real danger to humanity. "'Consider, Watson, that the material, "'the sensual, the worldly, "'would all prolong their worthless lives. "'The spiritual would not avoid the call "'to something higher.' It would be the survival of the least fit. What sort of cesspool may not our poor world become? Suddenly the dreamer disappeared, and Holmes, the man of action, sprang from his chair. I think there is nothing more to be said, Mr. Bennet. The various incidents will now fit themselves easily into the general scheme. The dog, of course, was aware of the change far more quickly than you. His smell would ensure that. It was the monkey, not the professor, whom Roy attacked, just as it was the monkey who teased Roy. Climbing was a joy to the creature, and it was a mere chance, I take it, that the pastime brought him to the young lady's window. There is an early train to town, Watson, but I think we shall just have time for a cup of tea at the checkers before we catch it. End of the Adventure of the Creeping Man Section 9 of The Case Book of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 9. The Adventure of the Lion's Mane. It is a most singular thing that a problem which was certainly as abstruse and unusual as any which I have faced in my long professional career should have come to me after my retirement and be brought, as it were, to my very door. It occurred after my withdrawal to my little Sussex home, when I had given myself up entirely to that soothing life of nature for which I had so often yearned during the long years spent amid the gloom of London. At this period of my life the good Watson had passed almost beyond my ken. An occasional weekend visit was the most that I ever saw of him. Thus I must act as my own chronicler. Ah, had he but been with me, how much he might have made of so wonderful a happening, and of my eventual triumph against every difficulty. As it is, however, I must needs tell my tale in my own plain way, showing by my words each step upon the difficult road which lay before me as I searched for the mystery of the lion's mane. My villa is situated upon the southern slope of the downs, commanding a great view of the channel. At this point the coastline is entirely of chalk cliffs, which can only be descended by a single, long, tortuous path which is steep and slippery. At the bottom of the path lie a hundred yards of pebbles and shingle, even when the tide is at full. Here and there, however, there are curves and hollows which make splendid swimming pools, filled afresh with each flow. This admirable beach extends for some miles in each direction, 
save only at one point where the little cove and village of Fulworth break the line. My house is lonely. I, my old housekeeper, and my bees have the estate all to ourselves. Half a mile off, however, is Harold Stackhurst's well-known coaching establishment, The Gables, quite a large place which contains some score of young fellows preparing for various professions, with a staff of several masters. Stackhurst himself was a well-known rowing blue in his day, and an excellent all-round scholar. He and I were always friendly from the day I came to the coast, and he was the one man who was on such terms with me that we could drop in on each other in the evenings without an invitation. Towards the end of July 1907, there was a severe gale, the wind blowing up channel, heaping the seas to the base of the cliffs, and leaving a lagoon at the turn of the tide. On the morning of which I speak, the wind had abated, and all nature was newly washed and fresh. It was impossible to work upon so delightful a day, and I strolled out before breakfast to enjoy the exquisite air. I walked along the cliff path which led to the steep descent to the beach. As I walked, I heard a shout behind me, and there was Harold Stackhurst waving his hand in cheery greeting. "'What a morning, Mr. Holmes! I thought I should see you out.' "'Going for a swim, I see.' "'At your old tricks again,' he laughed, patting his bulging pocket. "'Yes, Macpherson started early, and I expect I may find him there.' Fitzroy Macpherson was the science master, a fine, upstanding young fellow whose life had been crippled by heart trouble following rheumatic fever. He was a natural athlete, however, and excelled in every game which did not throw too great a strain upon him. Summer and winter he went for his swim— and as I am a swimmer myself, I have often joined him. At this moment we saw the man himself. His head showed above the edge of the cliff where the path ends. Then his whole figure appeared at the top, staggering like a drunken man. The next instant he threw up his hands, and with a terrible cry fell upon his face. Stackhurst and I rushed forward, it may have been fifty yards, and turned him on his back. He was obviously dying." Those glazed, sunken eyes and dreadful, livid cheeks could mean nothing else. One glimmer of life came into his face for an instant, and he uttered two or three words with an eager air of warning. They were slurred and indistinct, but to my ear the last of them, which burst in a shriek from his lips, were, "'The lion's mane!' It was utterly irrelevant and unintelligible, and yet I could twist the sound into no other sense— then he half raised himself from the ground, threw his arms in through the air, and fell forward on his side. He was dead. My companion was paralyzed by the sudden horror of it, and I, as may well be imagined, had every sense on the alert. And I had need, for it was speedily evident that we were in the presence of an extraordinary case. The man was dressed only in his Burberry overcoat, his trousers, and an unlaced pair of canvas shoes. As he fell over, his Burberry, which had been simply thrown round his shoulders, slipped off, exposing his trunk. We stared at it in amazement. His back was covered with dark red lines, as though he had been terribly flogged by a thin wire scourge. The instrument with which this punishment had been inflicted was clearly flexible, for the long, angry wheels curved round his shoulders and ribs. 
there was blood dripping down his chin, for he had bitten through his lower lip in the paroxysm of his agony. His drawn, distorted face told how terrible that agony had been. I was kneeling in Staghurst, standing by the body, when a shadow fell across us, and we found that Ian Murdoch was by our side. Murdoch was the mathematical coach at the establishment, a tall, dark, thin man, so taciturn and aloof that none can be said to have been his friend. He seemed to live in some high, abstract region of surds and conic sections, with little to connect him with ordinary life. He was looked upon as an oddity by the students, and would have been their butt, but there was some strange outlandish blood in the man which showed itself not only in his coal-black eyes and swarthy face, but also in occasional outbreaks of temper, which could only be described as ferocious. On one occasion, being plagued by a little dog belonging to Macpherson, he had caught the creature up and hurled it through the plate-glass window, an action for which Stackhurst would certainly have given him his dismissal had he not been a very valuable teacher. Such was the strange, complex man who now appeared beside us. He seemed to be honestly shocked at the sight before him, though the incident of the dog may show that there was no great sympathy between the dead man and himself. "'Poor fellow! Poor fellow! What can I do? How can I help?' "'Were you with him? Can you tell us what has happened?' "'No, no, I was late this morning. I was not on the beach at all. I have come straight from the gables. What can I do?' "'You can hurry to the police station at Fulworth. Report the matter at once.' Without a word he made off at top speed, and I proceeded to take the matter in hand, while Stackhurst, dazed at this tragedy, remained by the body. My first task, naturally, was to note who was on the beach. From the top of the path I could see the whole sweep of it, and it was absolutely deserted save that two or three dark figures could be seen far away moving towards the village of Fulworth. Having satisfied myself upon this point, I walked slowly down the path. There was clay, or soft marl, mixed with the chalk, and every here and there I saw the same footstep, both ascending and descending. No one else had gone down to the beach by this track that morning. At one place I observed the print of an open hand, with the fingers towards the incline. This could only mean that poor Macpherson had fallen as he ascended. There were rounded depressions, too, which suggested that he had come down upon his knees more than once. At the bottom of the path was the considerable lagoon left by the retreating tide. At the side of it Macpherson had undressed, for there lay his towel on a rock. It was folded and dry, so that it would seem that, after all, he had never entered the water. Once or twice, as I hunted round amid the hard shingle, I came on little patches of sand where the print of his canvas shoe and also of his naked foot could be seen. The latter fact proved that he had made ready to bathe, though the towel indicated that he had not actually done so. And here was the problem clearly defined, as strange a one as has ever confronted me. The man had not been on the beach more than a quarter of an hour at the most. Stackhurst had followed him from the gables, so there could be no doubt about that. He had gone to bathe and had stripped, as the naked footsteps showed. Then he had suddenly huddled on his clothes again, they were all disheveled and unfastened, and he had returned without bathing, or at any rate without drying himself. 
and the reason for his change of purpose had been that he had been scourged in some savage inhuman fashion tortured until he bit his lip through in his agony and was left with only strength enough to crawl away and to die who had done this barbarous deed there were it is true small grottoes and caves in the base of the cliffs but the low sun shone directly into them and there was no place for concealment then again there were those distant figures on the beach they seemed too far away to have been connected with the crime and the broad lagoon in which macpherson had intended to bathe lay between him and them lapping up to the rocks on the sea two or three fishing boats were at no great distance their occupants might be examined at our leisure there were several roads for inquiry but none which led to any very obvious goal when i at last returned to the body i found that a little group of wandering folk had gathered round it stackhurst was of course still there and ian murdoch had just arrived with anderson the village constable a big ginger-moustached man of the slow solid sussex breed a breed which covers much good sense under a heavy silent exterior he listened to everything took note of all we said and finally drew me aside i'd be glad of your advice mr holmes this is a big thing for me to handle and i'll hear it from lou's or i go wrong i advised him to send for his immediate superior and for a doctor also to allow nothing to be moved and as few fresh footmarks as possible to be made until they came in the meantime i searched the dead man's pockets there were his handkerchief a large knife and a small folding card case from this projected a slip of paper which i unfolded and handed to the constable there was written on it in a scrawling feminine hand i will be there you may be sure maudie it read like a love affair an assignation though when and where were a blank the constable replaced it in the card case and returned it with the other things to the pockets of the burberry then as nothing more suggested itself i walked back to my house for breakfast having first arranged that the base of the cliffs should be thoroughly searched stackhurst was round in an hour or two to tell me that the body had been removed to the gables where the inquest would be held he brought with him some serious and definite news as i expected nothing had been found in the small caves below the cliff but he had examined the papers in macpherson's desk and there were several which showed an intimate correspondence with a certain miss maud bellamy of fulworth we had then established the identity of the writer of the note the police have the letters he explained i could not bring them but there is no doubt that it was a serious love affair i see no reason however to connect it with that horrible happening save indeed that the lady had made an appointment with him but hardly at a bathing-pool which all of you were in the habit of using i remarked it is mere chance said he that several of the students were not with macpherson was it mere chance stackhurst knit his brows in thought ian murdoch held them back said he he would insist upon some algebraic demonstration before breakfast poor chap he is dreadfully cut up about it all and yet i gather that they were not friends at one time they were not but for a year or more murdoch has been as near to macpherson as he ever could be to any one he is not of a very sympathetic disposition by nature so i understand 
I seem to remember your telling me once about a quarrel over the ill usage of a dog. That blew over all right. But left some vindictive feeling, perhaps. No, no, I am sure they were real friends. Well, then, we must explore the matter of the girl. Do you know her? Everyone knows her. She is the beauty of the neighborhood, a real beauty, Holmes, who would draw attention everywhere. I knew that Macpherson was attracted by her, but I had no notion that it had gone so far as these letters would seem to indicate. But who is she? She is the daughter of old Tom Bellamy, who owns all the boats and bathing cots at Fulworth. He was a fisherman to start with, but is now a man of some substance. He and his son William run the business. Shall we walk to Fulworth and see them? On what pretext? Oh, we can easily find a pretext. After all, this man did not ill-use himself in this outrageous way. Some human hand was on the handle of that scourge, if indeed it was a scourge which inflicted the injuries. His circle of acquaintances in this lonely place was surely limited. Let us follow it up in every direction, and we can hardly fail to come upon the motive which, in turn, should lead us to the criminal. It would have been a pleasant walk across the time-scented downs had our minds not been poisoned by the tragedy we had witnessed. The village of Fulworth lies in a hollow curving in a semicircle round the bay. Behind the old-fashioned hamlet several modern houses have been built upon the rising ground. It was to one of these that Stackhurst guided me. That's the haven, as Bellamy called it, the one with the corner tower and slate roof. Not bad for a man who started with nothing, but, by Jove, look at that! The garden gate of the haven had opened, and a man had emerged. There was no mistaking that tall, angular, straggling figure. It was Ian Murdoch, the mathematician. A moment later we confronted him upon the road. Hello, said Stackhurst. The man nodded, gave us a sideways glance from his curious dark eyes, and would have passed us, but his principal pulled him up. "'What are you doing there?' he asked. Murdoch's face flushed with anger. "'I am your subordinate, sir, under your roof. I am not aware that I owe you any account of my private actions.' Stackhurst's nerves were near the surface after all he had endured. Otherwise, perhaps, he would have waited. Now he lost his temper completely. "'In the circumstances your answer is pure impertinence, Mr. Murdoch.' Your own question might perhaps come under the same heading. This is not the first time that I have had to overlook your insubordinate ways. It will certainly be the last. You will kindly make fresh arrangements for your future as speedily as you can. I had intended to do so. I have lost today the only person who made the gables habitable. He strode off upon his way, while Stackhurst, with angry eyes, stood glaring after him. "'Is he not an impossible, intolerable man?' he cried. "'The one thing that impressed itself forcibly upon my mind "'was that Mr. Ian Murdoch was taking the first chance "'to open a path of escape from the scene of the crime. "'Suspicion, vague and nebulous, "'was now beginning to take outline in my mind. "'Perhaps the visit to the Bellamy's "'might throw some further light upon the matter. "'Stackhurst pulled himself together, "'and we went forward to the house.' Mr. Bellamy proved to be a middle-aged man with a flaming red beard. He seemed to be in a very angry mood, and his face was soon as florid as his hair. "'No, sir,' 
I do not desire any particulars. My son here, indicating a powerful young man with a heavy, sullen face in the corner of the sitting-room, is of one mind with me that Mr. McPherson's attentions to Maud were insulting. Yes, sir, the word marriage was never mentioned, and yet there were letters and meetings, and a great deal more of which neither of us could approve. She has no mother, and we are her only guardians. We are determined. But the words were taken from his mouth by the appearance of the lady herself. There was no gainsaying that she would have graced any assembly in the world. Who could have imagined that so rare a flower would grow from such a root and in such an atmosphere? Women have seldom been an attraction to me, for my brain has always governed my heart, but I could not look upon her perfect, clear-cut face, with all the soft freshness of the downlands in her delicate colouring, without realising that no young man would cross her path unscathed. Such was the girl who had pushed open the door, and stood now wide-eyed and intense in front of Harold Stackhurst. "'I know already that Fitzroy is dead,' she said. "'Do not be afraid to tell me the particulars.' "'This other gentleman of yours let us know the news,' explained the father. "'There is no reason why my sister should be brought into the matter,' growled the younger man. The sister turned a sharp, fierce look upon him. "'This is my business, William. Kindly leave me to manage it in my own way.' By all accounts, there has been a crime committed. If I can help to show who did it, it is the least I can do for him who is gone. She listened to a short account from my companion, with a composed concentration which showed me that she possessed strong character as well as great beauty. Maud Bellamy will always remain in my memory as a most complete and remarkable woman. It seems that she already knew me by sight, for she turned to me at the end. Bring them to justice, Mr. Holmes. You have my sympathy and my help, whoever they may be. It seemed to me that she glanced defiantly at her father and brother as she spoke. Thank you, said I. I value a woman's instinct in such matters. You use the word they. You think that more than one was concerned? I knew Mr. McPherson well enough to be aware that he was a brave and a strong man. No single person could ever have inflicted such an outrage upon him. "'Might I have one word with you alone?' "'I tell you, Maud, not to mix yourself up in the matter,' cried her father, angrily. She looked at me helplessly. "'What can I do?' "'The whole world will know the facts presently, so there can be no harm if I discuss them here,' said I. "'I should have preferred privacy, but if your father will not allow it, he must share the deliberations.' Then I spoke of the note which had been found in the dead man's pocket. It is sure to be produced at the inquest. May I ask you to throw any light upon it that you can? I see no reason for mystery, she answered. We were engaged to be married, and we only kept it secret because Fitzroy's uncle, who is very old and said to be dying, might have disinherited him if he had married against his wish. There was no other reason. You could have told us, growled Mr. Bellamy. So I would, father, if you had ever shown sympathy. I object to my girl picking up with men outside her own station. It was your prejudice against him which prevented us from telling you. As to this appointment, she fumbled in her dress and produced a crumpled note. It was in answer to this. Dearest, ran the message, the old place on the beach just after sunset on Tuesday. It is the only time I can get away. F.M. 
Tuesday was today, and I had meant to meet him tonight. I turned over the paper. This never came by post. How did you get it? I would rather not answer that question. It has really nothing to do with the matter which you are investigating, but anything which bears upon that I will most freely answer. She was as good as her word, but there was nothing which was helpful to our investigation. She had no reason to think that her fiancé had any hidden enemy, but she admitted that she had several warm admirers. May I ask if Mr. Ian Murdoch was one of them? She blushed and seemed confused. There was a time when I thought he was, but that was all changed when he understood the relations between Fitzroy and myself. Again the shadow round this strange man seemed to me to be taking more definite shape. His record must be examined. His rooms must be privately searched. Stackhurst was a willing collaborator, for in his mind also suspicions were forming. We returned from our visit to the Haven with the hope that one free end of this tangled skein was already in our hands. A week passed. The inquest had thrown no light upon the matter, and had been adjourned for further evidence. Stackhurst had made discreet inquiry about his subordinate, and there had been a superficial search of his room, but without result. Personally, I had gone over the whole ground again, both physically and mentally, but with no new conclusions. In all my chronicles, the reader will find no case which brought me so completely to the limit of my powers. Even my imagination could conceive no solution to the mystery. And then there came the incident of the dog. It was my old housekeeper who heard of it first by that strange wireless by which such people collect the news of the countryside. "'Sad story, this, sir, about Mr. Macpherson's dog,' said she one evening. I do not encourage such conversations, but the words arrested my attention. What of Mr. Macpherson's dog? Dead, sir. Died of grief for its master. Who told you this? Why, sir, everyone is talking of it. It took on terrible, and has eaten nothing for a week. Then today two of the young gentlemen from the gables found it dead, down on the beach, sir, at the very place where its master met his end. At the very place... The word stood out clear in my memory. Some dim perception that the matter was vital rose in my mind. That the dog should die was after the beautiful, faithful nature of dogs, but in the very place. Why should this lonely beach be fatal to it? Was it possible that it also had been sacrificed to some vengeful feud? Was it possible? Yes. The perception was dim, but already something was building up in my mind. In a few minutes I was on my way to the gables, where I found Stackhurst in his study. At my request he sent for Sudbury and Blunt, the two students who had found the dog. "'Yes, it lay on the very edge of the pool,' said one of them. "'It must have followed the trail of its dead master.' I saw the faithful little creature, an Airedale terrier, laid out upon the mat in the hall. The body was stiff and rigid its eyes projecting, and the limbs contorted. There was agony in every line of it. From the gables I walked down to the bathing pool. The sun had sunk, and the shadow of the great cliff lay black across the water, which glimmered dully like a sheet of lead. The place was deserted, and there was no sign of life save for two seabirds circling and screaming overhead. 
In the fading light I could dimly make out the little dog spoor upon the sand round the very rock on which his master's towel had been laid. For a long time I stood in deep meditation, while the shadows grew darker around me. My mind was filled with racing thoughts. You have known what it was to be in a nightmare in which you feel that there is some all-important thing for which you search, and which you know is there, though it remains forever just beyond your reach. That was how I felt that evening as I stood alone by that place of death. Then, at last, I turned and walked slowly homewards. I had just reached the top of the path when it came to me. Like a flash, I remembered the thing for which I had so eagerly and vainly grasped. You will know, or Watson has written in vain, that I hold a vast store of out-of-the-way knowledge without scientific system, but very available for the needs of my work. My mind is like a crowded box-room with packets of all sorts stowed away therein, so many that I may well have but a vague perception of what was there. I had known that there was something which might bear upon this matter. It was still vague, but at least I knew how I could make it clear. It was monstrous, incredible, and yet it was always a possibility. I would test it to the full. There is a great garret in my little house which is stuffed with books. It was into this that I plunged and rummaged for an hour. At the end of that time I emerged with a little chocolate and silver volume. Eagerly I turned up the chapter of which I had a dim remembrance. Yes, it was indeed a far-fetched and unlikely proposition, and yet I could not be at rest until I had made sure if it might indeed be so. It was late when I retired, with my mind eagerly awaiting the work of the morrow. But that work met with an annoying interruption. I had hardly swallowed my early cup of tea, and was starting for the beach when I heard a call from Inspector Bardy of the Sussex Constabulary, a steady, solid, bovine man with thoughtful eyes, which looked at me now with a very troubled expression. "'I know your immense experience, sir,' said he. "'This is quite unofficial, of course, and need go no farther. But I am fairly up against it in this Macpherson case. The question is, shall I make an arrest, or shall I not?' "'Meaning Mr. Ian Murdoch?' "'Yes, sir.' There is really no one else when you come to think of it. That's the advantage of this solitude. We narrow it down to a very small compass. If he did not do it, then who did? What have you against him? He had gleaned along the same furrows as I had. There was Murdoch's character and the mystery which seemed to hang round the man. His furious bursts of temper, as shown in the incident of the dog, the fact that he had quarrelled with Macpherson in the past, and that there was some reason to think that he might have resented his attentions to Miss Bellamy. He had all my points, but no fresh ones, save that Murdoch seemed to be making every preparation for departure. What would my position be if I let him slip away with all this evidence against him? The burly phlegmatic man was sorely troubled in his mind. Consider, I said, all the essential gaps in your case. On the morning of the crime he can surely prove an alibi. He had been with his scholars till the last moment, and within a few minutes of Macpherson's appearance he came upon us from behind. Then bear in mind the absolute impossibility that he could single-handed have inflicted this outrage upon a man quite as strong as himself. Finally there is this question of the instrument with which these injuries were inflicted. 
What could it be but a scourge or flexible whip of some sort? Have you examined the marks? I asked. I have seen them. So is the doctor. But I have examined them very carefully with a lens. They have peculiarities. What are they, Mr. Holmes? I stepped to my bureau and brought out an enlarged photograph. This is my method in such cases, I explained. You certainly do things thoroughly, Mr. Holmes. I should hardly be what I am if I did not. Now, let us consider this wheel, which extends round the right shoulder. Do you observe nothing remarkable? I can't say I do. Surely it is evident that it is unequal in its intensity. There is a dot of extravasated blood here, and another there. There are similar indications in this other wheel down here. What can that mean? I have no idea, have you? Perhaps I have. Perhaps I haven't. I may be able to say more soon. Anything which will define what made that mark will bring us a long way towards the criminal. It is, of course, an absurd idea, said the policeman, but if a red-hot net of wire had been laid across the back, then these better-marked points would represent where the meshes crossed each other. A most ingenious comparison— or, shall we say, a very stiff cat o' nine tails with small, hard knots upon it? By Jove, Mr. Holmes, I think you have hit it. Or there may be some very different cause, Mr. Barty. But your case is far too weak for an arrest. Besides, we have those last words, lion's mane. I have wondered whether Ian... Yes, I have considered that. If the second word had borne any resemblance to Murdoch, but it did not. He gave it almost in a shriek. I am sure that it was Maine. Have you no alternative, Mr. Holmes? Perhaps I have. But I do not care to discuss it until there is something more solid to discuss. And when will that be? In an hour, possibly less. The inspector rubbed his chin and looked at me with dubious eyes. I wish I could see what was in your mind, Mr. Holmes. Perhaps it's those fishing boats. No, no, they were too far out. Well, then, is it Bellamy and that big son of his? They were not too sweet upon Mr. Macpherson. Could they have done them a mischief? No, no, you won't draw me until I'm ready, said I with a smile. Now, Inspector, we each have our own work to do. Perhaps if you were to meet me here at midday... So far we had got when there came the tremendous interruption which was the beginning of the end. My outer door was flung open, there were blundering footsteps in the passage, and Ian Murdoch staggered into the room, pallid, dishevelled, his clothes in wild disorder, clawing with his bony hands at the furniture to hold himself erect. "'Brandy! Brandy!' he gasped and fell groaning upon the sofa. He was not alone. Behind him came Stackhurst, hatless and panting, almost as distray as his companion. "'Yes, yes, Brandy,' he cried. "'The man is at his last gasp. It was all I could do to bring him here. He fainted twice upon the way.' Half a tumbler of the raw spirit brought about a wondrous change. He pushed himself up on one arm and swung his coat from off his shoulders. "'For God's sake, oil! Opium! Morphia!' he cried, anything to ease this infernal agony. The inspector and I cried out at the sight. There, 
crisscrossed upon the man's naked shoulder was the same strange reticulated pattern of red inflamed lines which had been the death mark of Fitzroy Macpherson. The pain was evidently terrible and was more than local, for the sufferer's breathing would stop for a time, his face would turn black, and then with loud gasps he would clap his hand to his heart while his brow dropped beads of sweat. At any moment he might die. More and more brandy was poured down his throat, each fresh dose bringing him back to life. Pads of cotton wool soaked in salad oil seemed to take the agony from the strange wounds. At last his head fell heavily upon the cushion. Exhausted nature had taken refuge in its last storehouse of vitality. It was half a sleep and half a faint, but at least it was ease from pain. To question him had been impossible, but the moment we were assured of his condition, Stackers turned upon me. "'My God!' he cried. "'What is it, Holmes? What is it?' "'Where did you find him?' "'Down on the beach, exactly where poor Macpherson met his end. If this man's heart had been as weak as Macpherson's was, he would not be here now. More than once I thought he was gone as I brought him up. It was too far to the gable, so I made for you.' "'Did you see him on the beach?' I was walking on the cliff when I heard his cry. He was at the edge of the water, reeling about like a drunken man. I ran down, threw some clothes about him, and brought him up. For heaven's sake, Holmes, use all the powers you have, and spare no pains to lift the curse from this place, for life is becoming unendurable. Can you, with all your world-wide reputation, do nothing for us? I think I can, Stackhurst. Come with me now. And you, Inspector, come along. We will see if we cannot deliver this murderer into your hands. Leaving the unconscious man in the charge of my housekeeper, we all three went down to the deadly lagoon. On the shingle there was piled a little heap of towels and clothes left by the stricken man. Slowly I walked round the edge of the water, my comrades in Indian file behind me. Most of the pool was quite shallow, but under the cliff, where the beach was hollowed out, it was four or five feet deep. It was to this part that a swimmer would naturally go, for it formed a beautiful pellucid green pool as clear as crystal. A line of rocks lay above it, at the base of the cliff, and along this I led the way, peering eagerly into the depths beneath me. I had reached the deepest and stillest pool when my eyes caught that for which they were searching, and I burst into a shout of triumph. "'Cyania!' I cried. "'Cyania! Behold! The lion's mane!' The strange object at which I pointed did indeed look like a tangled mass torn from the mane of a lion. It lay upon a rocky shelf some three feet under the water. A curious, waving, vibrating, hairy creature with streaks of silver among its yellow tresses. It pulsated with a slow, heavy dilation and contraction. "'It has done mischief enough. Its day is over,' I cried. "'Help me, Stackhurst. Let us end the murderer for ever.' There was a big boulder just above the ledge, and we pushed it until it fell with a tremendous splash into the water. When the ripples had cleared, we saw that it had settled upon the ledge below. One flapping edge of yellow membrane showed that our victim was beneath it. A thick, oily scum oozed out from below the stone and stained the water around, rising slowly to the surface. "'Well, this gets me,' cried the inspector. "'What was it, Mr. Holmes?' I'm born and bred in these parts, but I never saw such a thing. It don't belong to Sussex. Just as well for Sussex, I remarked. 
It may have been the southwest gale that brought it up. Come back to my house, both of you, and I will give you the terrible experience of one who has good reason to remember his own meeting with the same peril of the seas. When we reached my study, we found that Murdoch was so far recovered that he could sit up. He was dazed in mind, and every now and then was shaken by a paroxysm of pain. In broken words he explained that he had no notion what had occurred to him save that terrific pangs had suddenly shot through him, and that it had taken all his fortitude to reach the bank. "'Here is a book,' I said, taking up the little volume, which first brought light into what might have been forever dark. It is out of doors by the famous observer J. G. Wood.' Wood himself very nearly perished from contact with this vile creature, so he wrote with a very full knowledge. Cyania capillata is the miscreant's full name, and he can be as dangerous to life as, and far more painful than, the bite of the cobra. Let me briefly give this extract. Quote, if the bather should see a loose, roundish mass of tawny membranes and fibres, something like very large handfuls of lion's mane and silver paper, let him beware, for this is the fearful stinger Cyania capillata." Unquote. Could our sinister acquaintance be more clearly described? He goes on to tell his own encounter with one when swimming off the coast of Kent. He found that the creature radiated almost invisible filaments to the distance of fifty feet, and that any one within that circumference from the deadly centre was in danger of death. Even at a distance the effect upon wood was almost fatal. Quote, the multitudinous threads caused light scarlet lines upon the skin, which on closer examination resolved into minute dots or pustules, each dot charged, as it were, with a red-hot needle making its way through the nerves. Unquote. The local pain was, as he explains, the least part of the exquisite torment. Quote, Fang shot through the chest, causing me to fall as if struck by a bullet. The pulsation would cease, and then the heart would give six or seven leaps, as if it would force its way through the chest. Unquote. It nearly killed him, although he had only been exposed to it in the disturbed ocean and not in the narrow, calm waters of a bathing pool. He says that he could hardly recognize himself afterwards, so white, wrinkled, and shriveled was his face. He gulped down brandy, a whole bottleful, and it seems to have saved his life. There is the book, Inspector. I leave it with you. And you cannot doubt that it contains a full explanation of the tragedy of poor Macpherson. And incidentally exonerates me, remarked Ian Murdoch with a wry smile. I do not blame you, Inspector, nor you, Mr. Holmes, for your suspicions were natural. I feel that on the very eve of my arrest I have only cleared myself by sharing the fate of my poor friend. No, Mr. Murdoch, I was already upon the track, and had I been out as early as I intended, I might well have saved you from this terrific experience. But how did you know, Mr. Holmes? I am an omnivorous reader with a strangely retentive memory for trifles. That phrase, lion's mane, haunted my mind. I knew that I had seen it somewhere in an unexpected context. You have seen that it does describe the creature. I have no doubt that it was floating on the water when Macpherson saw it, and that this phrase was the only one by which he could convey to us a warning as to the creature which had been his death. "'Then I at least am cleared,' said Murdoch, rising slowly to his feet. "'There are one or two words of explanation which I should give, for I know the direction in which your inquiries have run.' 
It is true that I loved this lady, but from the day when she chose my friend Macpherson my one desire was to help her to happiness. I was well content to stand aside and act as their go-between. Often I carried their messages, and it was because I was in their confidence and because she was so dear to me that I hastened to tell her of my friend's death, lest someone should forestall me in a more sudden and heartless manner. She would not tell you, sir, of our relations, lest you should disapprove and I might suffer. But with your leave I must try to get back to the gables, for my bed will be very welcome. Stackhurst held out his hand. "'Our nerves have all been at concert pitch,' said he. "'Forgive what is past, Murdoch. "'We shall understand each other better in the future.' They passed out together, with their arms linked in friendly fashion. The inspector remained, staring at me in silence with his ox-like eyes. "'Well, you've done it,' he cried at last. "'I had read of you, but I never believed it. "'It's wonderful.' I was forced to shake my head. To accept such praise was to lower one's own standards. I was slow at the outset, culpably slow. Had the body been found in the water, I could hardly have missed it. It was the towel which misled me. The poor fellow had never thought to dry himself, and so I in turn was led to believe that he had never been in the water. Why then should the attack of any water creature suggest itself to me? That was where I went astray. Well, well, Inspector, I often ventured to chaff you gentlemen of the police force, but Cyania Capilita very nearly avenged Scotland Yard. The End of the Adventure of the Lion's Mane